0: The candy canes came out on stage they were wearing gold lame dresses short skirts and they looked great and they started playing and i thought my god they're better than all the guys that i've heard and they just blew me away
1: welcome to the rediscovering debbie campbell podcast last episode we were talking about the adventures and influence of the all-girl band the candy canes back in the 1960s which is where we pick up this episode I had the opportunity to speak to Becky Hobbs, a songwriter and country singer who got to see them in the flesh back in the day.
0: I was a senior in high school when I read in the Tulsa world that an all-girl band from Fort Worth, Texas called the Candy Canes were playing at the Fonda Light Club. You've probably heard these stories. Oklahoma, drinking age, was 21, so we were too young to drink or to go into clubs. But at that time, since the clubs were all Privately owned, it was all bring your own liquor, B-Y-O-L, or bring your own bottle, B-Y-O-V. You could go with your parents. They'd pay like a little fee, like they're joining the club, like a dollar or two or something. And then you could go in and you could drink out of your own bottle if you wanted. My parents didn't drink. But by golly, they loved music like I did. So I begged them to take me to the Fondalite Club, and they joyfully did.
1: Wow, that was clearly a different time. There's really nothing like that anymore. But it was so cool that Becky's parents were supportive of her musical dreams. So I asked her how she got started making music.
0: I started writing songs when I was nine years old in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. My older sister was taking piano lessons and I took three lessons and I just decided to make up my own songs and to look at those big notes on a sheet of paper but at age 15, I started what has now been designated as the first all-female rock band in the state of Oklahoma. We were called the Four Faces of Eve. Piano's piano is my main instrument, but I had gotten an electric guitar and I had found the volume knob, loud and louder. So here I am, you know, we were playing locally around Bartlesville with the Y-Hud and for little teenage dances. We played on the breaks of the Rogues Five, who were a very popular band in Tulsa at the time, about our age, maybe a year older, or something like that. Jamie Oldacre was the drummer. There's some pictures on my website, BeckyHobbs.com. There's a six-minute video when I was inducted into the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame. If you watch that, you can see a picture of the all-girl band and everything.
1: Now that I knew a bit more about Becky's background, we dug into the specifics of that Candy Cane show that she saw.
0: As I recall, they did songs like Higher and Higher, and they did some Young Rascal songs because my all-girl band was doing some of those songs. But since I was the guitar player in The Four Faces of Eve, I really was focused on Debbie and what a great player she was and a great singer and all of their vocals, their harmonies were great. So really, that was my first experience seeing an all-female rock band in person. At that time, I hadn't even seen any on TV. So they were a great inspiration to me and my little all-girl band. But the four faces of Eve, the other gals did not get to see them. They didn't go.
1: It must have been so cool to see that show as a teenager, seeing girls your own age, playing the music that you're playing. And I wondered, how did it inspire her to go further with her music career?
0: late in the year when we were seniors in high school, we all started not getting along, which sometimes that happens. Somebody wants somebody's boyfriend, you know. So at that time, a guy in Tulsa named Charlie Brown, his real name was Charlie Knoll. And he got the idea from my all-girl band because we had started playing on Dance Party, which was a local TV show. Lee Bailey hosted it every Saturday morning. And he got the idea to put together an all-girl band from Four Faces of Eve, and by that time, we weren't getting along. So we all auditioned for the all-girl band out of Tulsa, and I won the guitar position, and we became the Surprise Package. S-I-R, capital P-R-I-Z-E, Package. Oh, God, I'm sorry. And in looking back, Charlie was rather weird. We wore the mini skirts, the go-go boots, and before every gig he said, now show me your shorts, girls. He wanted to make sure we're wearing shorts under our short dresses. So we'd say, we're wearing our shorts, Charlie. And in looking back, I'm saying, "Hmm," you know. Anyway, we played some gigs and we were out of Tulsa and we broke away from Charlie finally because it was sort of limited to what he could do. And we went to upstate New York and played a bunch of gigs in the show bars where you stand on a little U-shaped stage and all these businessmen from Japan are drinking and sitting there looking up at us, buying us drinks and things like that. So we played Syracuse, Utica, Romulus, New York, Scranton, Pennsylvania, a bunch of places like that. And when we were up there, the lead singer in the band quit. That was sort of the end of the all-girl band days. And I just decided in December of 1970, we were down to three pieces and we played the crazy horse in Birmingham, Alabama. And I met a band called the War Babies from Baton Rouge. And they said, hey, you want to get in our bus? They had an old bus, painted it all psychedelic. So we all went back to Baton Rouge and we played a whole bunch of gigs at LSU fraternity houses. And then a couple of years after living in Baton Rouge and playing in that band, I went out to Los Angeles with Lewis Anderson, the guitar player in the band. And then that's when I started getting my songs cut and being in the real music business.
1: Now we're talking. I love hearing how people who intersected careers with Debbie go on to have great careers themselves.
0: Lynn Orso in Baton Rouge was a producer, and I think he produced John Fred and the Playboy band, Judy in Disguise with Diamonds, that song. He said, boy, when you guys get to L.A., you need to look up Kim Fowley. Kim was like a notorious Hollywood person, the illegitimate son of Howard Hughes. Later, he formed The Runaways. He had something to do with the Hollywood Argyles and Alley Oop. I think he co-wrote "I icicles, baseball on Friday nights. So I called Kim Valley, and he showed up at our door in L.A., and it was like 90 degrees, and he was wearing a floor-length rabbit fur coat and holding a teddy bear. And uh, he flipped over Lewis and I's songs. And right about that same time, I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and being from a small town in Oklahoma, I'd just smile and say hi to everybody. You know, no tread off of my tires. I wasn't going home with them or anything. And I met a guy named Tornado Warren.
1: Tornado Warren? Man, these are some great names. Becky went on to tell me how Tornado connected her with the singer Helen Reddy.
0: So I took a little cassette into Jeff Walls, and immediately I got two Helen Reddy cuts. And through the years, I've had four Helen Reddy cuts. And she was such a godsend to me, just such a beautiful person. So Lewis and I's first big cut was I'll Be Your Audience that Helen recorded. She closed her shows with them. It was on her Free and Easy album, on her Live at the Palladium album. And then Helen cut a couple more of my songs. Oh, I Can't Say Goodbye to You, she cut later, which won the American Song Festival in, I think, 1979.
1: You may not know Helen Reddy. But she was a pretty big deal in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. So that must have been an amazing opportunity for Becky. And I wonder what other opportunities she got.
0: Kim Fowley, back then, he said a friend of his named Bob Ezrin, was looking for songs for a fairly new band called Kiss.
1: Wow, from a show singer to a big rock band like Kiss, that's a pretty big jump.
0: And Lewis and I pitched a song that we wrote called Ain't None of Your Business. And we never heard anything back. It did not make the Destroyer album. And then this past November, the 45th deluxe anniversary of the Kiss Destroyer album came out. Ain't None of Your Business is on there twice. They had cut the song. It did not make the Destroyer album. So after 45 years, Lewis Anderson and I have a Kiss cut. And I went out and I bought that deluxe set. I mean, it's 200 bucks for the deluxe set because it's a great big booklet of glossy pictures and backstage passes and stickers and all kinds of stuff.
1: must have been a bummer not to see your song released back in the day, but pretty cool to be included in that box set. But at this point, I'm really wondering, how did Becky make the leap from writing songs for other people to being her own artist?
0: I remember when I saw I was Well... When I was out in L.A. and just beating the streets all the time, the urban cowboy movement just whooshed in. And being from Oklahoma, I mean, it was just natural for me to start writing more country-oriented songs. In fact, when I got out to L.A., I went out there to be a rock singer, actually. And when I'd open my mouth, people would say, you're a country singer, aren't you? And I'd say, well... No, but well, you know, maybe so. And then, of course, when the urban cowboy movement came in, I got more work than I could handle. I started playing The Ranch in Garden Grove, Cowboys in Anaheim, Crazy Horse in Santa Ana, Alamino, of course, in North Hollywood. I played The Roundup in Chatsworth, Finn and Feather, San Fernando. One of my favorite gigs was The Rawhide in North Hollywood, The Gay Bar. And I loved it because I could wear the skimpiest, sexiest outfits ever. No guys were going to hit on me.
1: You know, I'm pretty sure most of those clubs have closed by now, but it's pretty cool that they're all pretty much in my neighborhood out in L.A. With all that experience under her belt, I started to wonder about what she's up to these days.
0: I'm a Cherokee Nation citizen. Have you read about my musical?
1: Yeah, I saw that.
0: Yeah. So we're going to be having another production in Tulsa, and that's part of the people I'm trying to, get together and Cherokee Nation now has a film office and they're getting to be very active in the world of film and television and everything. Telling my fifth great grandmother's story, Hee Nancy Ward, has become very, very important for me because she risked her life to make peace between the Cherokees and all others. Most importantly, the early Americans. American history would not be as it is today if she had not have lived. So we had our first production in 2012 in Hartwell, Georgia, and we've had a total now of 11 productions in four different states. So that's taken up a bunch of my time, and the songs are the best writing I've ever done because they were all inspired, and they were all the ones, you know, I put it in my head what I wanted to write about the theme of this scene, and then I'd wake up in the middle of the night with that and Creeping to the Keys or singing it into my phone whatever but it's been a massive undertaking and it's enough to drive a person crazy but it's happening
1: wow it's so cool that she made a musical about her fifth great grandmother's life it's called Nanyehi, the story of nancy ward and it's actually playing at the hard rock in tulsa october 13th and 14th of this year so after we talked about all her accolades we circled back to debbie
0: So Now, so Debbie, who was Debbie's first husband?
1: First husband was Dub Campbell. He was in Buckwheat.
0: I knew Dub. Okay, I had forgotten that. Yes, Dub and Mark, the bass player, and Michael Smotherman, Bucky, I knew all of them. When they came to Tulsa and played at PJ's, they were back in a guy named Jim Edgar, and they were Jim Edgar and the Roadrunners. So I met all of them back then, and they all started working with my all-girl band, the one out of Tulsa, right? So I think that's before Buckwheat started, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better segue. Getting to talk to Becky was such a treat, and ending the interview that way really set me up to start talking about Buckwheat, which is what's coming next in this episode.
2: God, dude, I've held that brass ring more than once. Like with Buckwheat. It's like, ah slip out of your hand you know i mean god that we were right there
1: if you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was you are in luck descript or descript is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a google doc we use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows and trust me it's easy to learn Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter. I didn't know much about the band Buckwheat when I started this project. So when I asked my dad what he knew about them, the one person he'd met was Mark Durham, the bassist. Luckily, I was able to track him down and set up a call.
2: I was in a band called Jim Edgar and the Road Runners. It was myself and then it was Dub Campbell, who Debbie later married, and a guy named Michael Smother. We had been the in men all through college, but I graduated from college in 1968 with a degree in business, and I went to work for IBM right out of college. I had been going to school in a smaller town. Dub and Michael had also gone to school there in the same little Southwestern State University in Oklahoma. So I moved to Oklahoma City and got a job with IBM. And Michael and Dub moved to Oklahoma City and they scored a gig, a road gig, with this guy, Jim Ed and the Roadrunners who had just signed with this booking agency in California. Big deal. And they had a lot of gigs on the books. And I'm working at IBM and I'm hating them for it, And then the guy who was playing bass with them quit just when they were getting ready to leave town and they offered me this gig on the road playing bass, making about three times as much money as I was making at IBM. So I gave my two minute notice and I never looked back.
1: That's pretty incredible. It's hard to believe that a gig playing music would pay you three times more than a gig at IBM. That's not the way that works out these days at all.
2: So our very first gig as the Roadrunners was in Fort Worth. And there was a place called the East Side Club. And the East Side Club was an after-hours joint. So it didn't start rocking until 2 in the morning. Well, Debbie was in the Candy Canes at that time. And there was a guy that used to come hear us at the after-hours club and he was trying to help the Candy Canes, kind of manage them. And he brought them out to the East Side Club to sit in. And they were really a good band. Every one of them were good players. Debbie, she was a really a good guitar player.
1: This sounds like this was happening right around the end of the Candy Canes journey. So how did Debbie go from being a really good guitar player in the Candy Canes to being a singer in a band with Mark?
2: probably in about August 1968. When she joined our band, she just joined as a girl singer. And she joined Jim Edgar and the Roadrunners. She was too young to go on the road. She was only 17. And uh, mom and dad trusted me and my wife, Marlene, at that time, to be Debbie's guardians. And they let her go on the road with us.
1: Wow. That is a lot of trust.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, we had a lot of stuff booked. We were playing Tulsa, Wichita, Kansas, Kansas City, and and Oklahoma City, and all in the Midwest. But then the big caveat was we had a gig in San Diego starting, I think, in January of 69. So we all went to San Diego together. And Marlene and I got a two-bedroom apartment, and Debbie lived with us. Well, I got to know her really well. She was like my little sister. So that was the beginning of our musical time together.
1: So what was life like as a roadrunner?
2: At that time, whenever the clubs booked a band, I mean, they'd book you for six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. I mean, they'd book you for a long time, six nights a week. And so we usually have uh Sunday or Monday night off, but you play the rest of the nights. And on those really slow nights, we would do a lot of silly stuff. Well, on my microphone stand, I had a couple of horns and a police whistle and a slide whistle and various silly things. It was kind of like going to see Spike Jones, if you know who that is. But anyway, we were kind of a show band without being a show band, you know. And there was a guy in San Diego who happened to be the lead singer in a band it had a really big hit in the early 60s called Rhythm of the Rain. Listen to the rhythm of the rain. Well, that guy knew a manager in Hollywood. He told the manager about us. The manager's name was Todd. We're in San Diego. And Todd came down and saw us. We were at the Green Onion Club. I think our initial booking might have been eight weeks. And we wound up staying in that club about a year and a half and packing it. Lines out the door it was crazy. But people would come in on the off nights because we would do all this crazy stuff. And we did a lot of parodies, took a lot of songs and just did our own little stupid parodies to them. So this guy comes down and decides that we had the potential to be a really good band Well, so Debbie, well, she played trumpet and she was pretty good on it too. And Michael Smotherman also played trumpet and he played the Hammond organ with his left hand and then would play trumpet with his right hand and then Debbie would play trumpet. And I would take my bass and fret the notes on the bass and play valve trombone. We know how to play a horn, so let's figure this out. People would come to see us just because we were pretty unique. And so Todd had this vision, and at the time, this was in the late 60s, and we were making a couple of grand a week, not each, but, you know, as a band. But this guy was saying, man, as a show band, I can book you in Nevada and into dinner clubs and all this stuff and make you 6000 $7,000 a week. And so that sounded pretty good to us. So we went for it, and then he started teaching us dance steps. And he started making us do our jokes at specific times. <laughs> and, you know, timing and doing the show and all this stuff. But he was right. Our first gig was making about twice that much. in a dinner club in Stockton. California. Then from there to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Then we wound up in Lake Tahoe. We made like five, six grand a week up there. I don't know what it was, but in the midst of all this, our buddy Jim Edgar, he just couldn't get into the dance steps. He was two left feet. He bowed out of the band actually, and we continued on. And of course, Dub and me, both, neither one of us could dance. We were, I guess, pretty comical probably.
1: That kind of change in personnel Especially taking away Jim Edgar from Jim Edgar and the Roadrunners probably means a name change too.
2: Todd thought because it was Jim Edgar and the Roadrunners, and the Roadrunners is old and he name and he came up with the picket fence. And we all thought it was kind of stupid name. But we let him have complete control because he said, I know how to do this. So we did all of that and did that whole Tahoe thing and then At the end of Tahoe, we had gigs booked in Vegas and dinner theaters. And I tell you, it wasn't our cup of tea. We're used to people partying and dancing to us and we're playing at dinner theaters and people are eating their salad while we're playing dance to the music or something by Sly and the Family Stone, (laughs) you know? So we weren't really a good fit for that. So we decided enough of this. We're not gonna do this anymore. We're going back to San Diego. And at that point, Dub and Debbie had some issues and they had basically split up. And then she left the band and went back to Fort Worth. And that was probably in about 1970. So Dub, Michael, and I went back to San Diego and we started writing songs and we decided we're going to be an original band. We're going to figure out how to write some songs. So we started doing that. We found a drummer in San Diego. That's when we became Buckwheat. It's probably late '70s. We found a little bar there in San Diego that would let us come in and do what we wanted to. We weren't making any money, but we were happy to write songs. And a couple of guys from L.A. came down to see Buckwheat, and they really liked us. And they had had some success as managers. Here we go again. Another manager. Kind of got to have one. So they took us to L.A. And this was the DiMartino brothers. They were a couple of guys and they were from Brooklyn. They took us to a studio in Hollywood and we recorded in one 24-hour span, eight or nine songs, whatever's on our very, very first Buckwheat album. And they took those recordings to England, and they got us a four-record deal with London Records. That was a pretty big deal. That was a big label at the time. They had the Stones. So we signed that deal as Buckwheat, and that first record came out. And we had been in touch with Debbie, and it was like little sisters, like, Dang, you're so far away, and we love you. And Dub got to a point where he said, Hey, you know, forget everything that's happened. We need you in this band. And she was missing us and came back, joined us again as Buckwheat. And our managers, they would give us really a lot of gigs. Again, weren't making any money, we're starting artists, but we were doing our original material, and Debbie was back in the band and that's when we did the Moving On album, which spawned a couple of quasi-hits. The Simple Song of Freedom was got a lot of action, a lot of play. Did you know that was played at the 1974 Democratic Convention? Debbie's vocal delivery on that song absolutely slayed me, man. I, it was perfect.
1: That's the song that landed them on the Billboard charts in 1972. And Debbie is doing her very, very best Aretha on that one.
2: Then we toured, that's when we toured a lot up in Canada. We have number one singles up there. So we were touring quite a bit up in there in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Northern California, and places like that. The Moving On album was like Roots Americana Rock and Roll. And we did a kind of departure when we cut the Charade album, because that album's got horns all over it. It's funky, and it reflects what we grew up listening to. But it was a real departure from the Moving On album. Yeah, it it wasn't as well received.
1: You know, I haven't spent that much time with their Charade album, but their last album, Hot Tracks, I think is funky and awesome, and it's really slept on.
2: Man, we had 14 different drummers in that band.
1: Can you believe that? It's like Spinal Tap
2: for like Spinal Tap. I mean, I cannot tell you what it was. I don't know. As a bass player, maybe I was, I don't know.
1: So after 14 drummers and four albums in three years, it sounds like Buckwheat was coming to an end.
2: Michael was growing discontent being in a band when he was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, Smotherman was a mighty powerful character. And he felt that it was time for him to strike out on his own. And maybe it was. It was like, man, it was like the end of a marriage when we broke up. It was rough. That would have been in 73. That's when we broke up. It was cold. I remember that. It was probably in January, February or something. And we were in Colorado Springs. And we had stopped and were getting gas. Is standing out in the cold outside the van, that's when Michael decided to drop the bombshell. When get back to L.A., man, I'm leaving the band. <laughs> what? But that's when Debbie went first to Fort Worth for a while, and she went on to Tulsa and became the queen of that music scene. I love the records that she made there.
1: Well, now we're getting to the point in history that I know a bit more about when Debbie comes to Tulsa. But we have a bit more to hear about her story and how it intersects with Buckwheat coming up after the break.
3: When I was working in a band and I wish that I could tell you that the guys were were really awful and that they were all a bunch of drug addicts and alcoholics and I guess it's true to a certain extent, but I'm grateful that I had some responsible people. I mean, they took care of me many times when I probably would have been killed. They took care of me when left to my own devices, I probably would have been dead by now.
1: Hey everyone, my name is Aubrey Allen and I'm a producer here on Rediscovering Debbie Campbell. Together, Lynn's and I have put hundreds of hours into this project so far and we're just getting started. So if you want to help us continue to tell Debbie's story, please click the donate button in our show notes or in our link tree to make a one-time donation. Every little bit will go directly towards the production of this show, which works to showcase and preserve the history of Debbie Campbell and artists like her. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Now that we've heard the whole arc of the Buckwheat story from the perspective of Mark, the bass player, I want to go back to a part that he kind of glossed over, which was about Debbie and her first husband, Dub Campbell.
3: So I was living in California, working in a rock and roll band in the late 60s. The hippie thing was happening, and I joined this group out of western Oklahoma. The group was called Buckwheat. We went out to California. We got a record deal. I married the guitar player just really for convenience. His name was Campbell, and Debbie Campbell was so much happier than Deborah Voorhees, which was my maiden name. You know, I got married to this poor guy. I had just turned 19. We got married in 69, and this was Christmas time. and I had not met his mom or his dad. They lived in a little farm town way out in southwestern Oklahoma. We'd been living in California, and we were coming home for the holidays, and we got snowed in. We were only going to stay a couple of days. We went into the house, and I remember, I mean, I grew up with, there was no alcohol in the house. My dad had a shotgun, but he... He kept it in the closet, and he warned me, don't ever even look at this gun. (laughs) Don't look at it. Don't touch it. I was really pretty scared of guns. Well, we go into my husband's parents' house, and there's Jack Daniel, big gallon Christmas decanter everywhere. I don't mean like a couple of them on a table like over here. I mean there are probably 20 or 30 decanters of whiskey. And then there are all these guns on the wall and I'm just going, boy, hello. I have not seen anything like this in my whole life.
1: So if you don't know by now, a big part of Debbie's story revolves around alcoholism. While she eventually got sober and helped a lot of people with their struggles, her story starts with one drink. And this is the story of that drink.
3: And about 4.30 that afternoon, my husband's dad, they break out the whiskey and start the afternoon, or the, what they would call evening drinking, which, you know, at Christmas time it gets dark pretty early, so they sort of said, well, come and join us for a drink, and I, oh, no, I don't drink. Oh, not me? Oh, no. Mm-mm. And, uh, no, I don't drink. So they started drinking, and then they started arguing. <laughs> I forget I think her name was Cora May or something, anyway... She started uh, telling her husband that she just by God was going to haul off and kill him. I mean, they started talking about killing each other. And I mean, I was that nervous little girl and I was in a strange situation, a strange house. I'd never been in a house that had that much alcohol in it and guns just hanging off things and over, you know, just sitting in the corner, rifles, you know, propped up against the wall. And then they start fighting and they think they're going to, you know, kill each other. And I don't know that they might, I don't know. So um, I was real nervous that night, (laughs) and I think I probably just went on back and went to bed and closed the door and hoped that I didn't hear gunshots. And so the next day comes the big snowstorm, and my husband says, Well, we can't get out, you know, and I'm going, Oh, okay, we can't get out. So the next day at about 4.30, they break out the whiskey again, and they start drinking, and they push a drink my way. And as best I can remember, I said, no, thank you. You know, I don't exactly remember this story. And if I knew I was going to become an alcoholic, I would have really paid attention. <laughs> but uh, but I didn't. So anyway, I don't know if it was the second night or if it was the third night. I don't really remember. But I do know that they pushed a drink my way and I took that first drink and it was in a little shot glass. They had probably a thousand little shot glasses sitting around lots of knickknacks, and they all were related to either guns or drinking anyway i took this drink and i'm sure it burned going down and i'm sure i coughed and sputtered i do remember sitting there at the kitchen table and kind of coughing and everything but how i know i am an alcoholic today is that from the first drink that i took i began to relax And I had never been relaxed before in my 19 years. I began to look at them and and I know they probably started fighting and started cussing at each other. And I had another drink and then it came the point where I just didn't care if they killed each other. I didn't care if they killed me. Everything was great. You know, I was finally at peace with the world because I had taken this drink of alcohol. And then I'd taken another and another and another. And we were drinking straight shots and chasing it with a little six and a half ounce Cokes. Well, I remember waking up the next day, oh God, just sick as a dog, throwing up, shaking my head going, this is crazy. I do remember thinking that that was insane. It was an insane thing to do. I remember that, that this is crazy. I... How do they do this every day, you know, it just been marvel that they could have the stamina for that, because I was just dying. And saying right then, right then, after my first drunk, saying I'll never do that again. And by 4.30 that afternoon, I was doing it again. And that to me was, I was just an alcoholic waiting to take that first drink, because alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It made me at peace with the world. I was never a good shopper. I didn't know how people went to the grocery store. I didn't know how women couldn't figure out how did they function. And I remember thinking that when I had that drink, this is how people do it. And I really believed that everybody drank and that that's how they functioned. And uh, so once we finally got out of there, I was a rip-roaring, full-blown drunk. I didn't go through any one year of social drinking. No, two years of social drinking. I mean, I was a full-blown drunk from that moment on.
1: A lot of people have different notions about what alcoholism is or isn't or how it works. And there's really no one true way that it works. But this story from Debbie is how it worked for her.
3: I remember going back to California, knowing what now I could order. You know, I could order in bars could order certain things, and usually just ordered Jack Daniels or this stuff, Old Forester, And that just got worse. We were in the midst of the hippie revolution, the sexual revolution, the musical revolution. I was born in 1950. I still had the morals of someone raised in the 1950s. I knew better than to do a lot of the stuff that I started doing. I felt bad about doing some of these things. But it seemed to me that peer pressure was saying to me, Debbie, you really need to cut down on this drinking and you need to do more drugs. So that sounded like a real good plan to me. I started experimenting any way I could, trying to find that perfect mixture. Something to keep me up and because the alcohol would, I'd get really sloppy. And I was trying to find that, and I thought I did. Once again, the insanity was so strong that I thought if I did these white crosses, these truck drivers would take these great little things called white crosses, little tiny, little pills, tiny. And you could take like a half of one of those and you could drive all the way across country and just stop for gas. So I thought that was the solution. My favorite thing, though, was drinking. I had friends who would do all sorts of weird things to get some drugs, and I was going, well, why do we have to wait on this drug dealer when we, you know, we got a gallon of whiskey here. What's the problem? (laughs) I would drink, and I would get real drunk i'd get real belligerent depending on what i drank sometimes i'd get melancholy and i'd cry if i was drinking tequila i'd get real mean and i would like hit people and i mean hit hit guys i would like take on the bouncers and think okay and throw drinks on people i was real good at throwing drinks on people So, you know, I was just a wreck. And that was how I was. I didn't get any better. I never figured out how to drink like a lady. I don't even know that I even wanted to drink like a lady because I don't know what that was. I thought people who drank maybe margaritas were just lightweights. And why do that? Because I was really drinking to get blotto. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was just not comfortable with who I was. And I drank. And I know that once I take that first drink, And that sets up that compulsion to take another and another and another. And before I know it, I'm gone.
1: Debbie's story really illustrates how easy it is to use alcohol and drugs to cover up our own pain. In the next episodes and beyond, we'll talk a bit more about how she got through this, how she came out of it, and how she moved on with her life.
3: I left California because of a New Year's Eve celebration that I had just made a total and complete fool of myself and made a lot of people angry. And so I thought, I'd better leave California. And I knew that I wanted to move to Tulsa. I had been in Tulsa a few times and met some musicians here. And I loved what was going on musically in this city. And I remember trying so hard not to drink, just white knuckling, knowing that that was my problem.
1: Rediscovering Debbie Campbell is produced by Lins Florin and Aubrey Allen for Growth Network Podcasts. Additional support provided by Brianna Javon. Don't forget to check out the show notes where you can find links to sign up for our newsletter and follow us on our social pages, such as our Facebook group filled with not only fans, but also her friends and family. Thanks to our guests for sharing their stories and to the generous donors who have contributed financially on our website. This is a labor of love, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen, share, and support us any way you can.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.